before we do begin, um, let's ask the Lord for help and let's ask him for guidance in his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that our eyes, Lord, are so weak at times. We don't focus on you. We don't look at your grandeur. We don't look at your greatness. And Lord, that is to our hurt. We ask that you would please grant us eyes to see you, Father. I pray that as I bring your word, Lord, as, I, as best as I, as I think I'm interpreting your word, I pray that you would bring a vision of you. I pray that people will ha be confronted with you. And not just with a, reg with a sermon or not just with um, talk, Lord, but I pray that my words, the words that come out of my mouth, Lord, that they would be ushered with power. And I ask that your Holy Spirit, Lord, will touch each and every one of us. I pray that you will speak to us in the areas in which you know where we need to be spoken to. And use your word, O oh Lord, to bless and to convict, to encourage and to equip each and every one of us in your son Jesus' name. For his glory, Lord, and for our good, we pray this. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Um, most of you, if you've been following with us, you've understood one thing about Ecclesiastes is that a lot of times it seems a little bit confusing. Um, a lot of times you're reading Ecclesiastes and you're like, wait, what do I do with this? What do I do with this passage? Um, but it's very helpful. I hope that you've been um, helped as we've been expounding through this book. And I pray that you've been able to see Ecclesiastes with new eyes and that you've been able to um, appreciate it afresh. Right now, um, we are going to look and we're going to study Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 2, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 9, verse 10. Um, and as I was going through this, and as I was studying through the passage, I've been, I was wrestling with it, I'm trying to, I'm pouring over like books, trying to understand this passage, and as soon as I felt like I got the interpretation, I scratched the whole thing and I'm like, nah, I don't think I agree with this interpretation, and I go again, and I continue marching just so that I can figure out what this author is trying to communicate to us. And I pray that I'm able to help you understand to the best of my ability, what this author is trying to communicate. So Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 2. And before I begin, I want to um, remind you of a quote that I um, quoted last time I preached um, by Matthew Henry. And he says this, he says these words. He says, do not expect unchanging happiness in a changing world. I kind of twerked it a little uh, a little bit, um, but do not expect unchanging happiness in a changing world. We, we, we understand that we live in a changing world. We understand that we live in a world that, that's filled with sorrow, that's filled with happiness and 
at times, distress. Don't expect to go from one stage to another stage to another stage in your life in an unceasingly happy state. We're going to experience trials at times. And so we're going to ask ourselves, how do we wrestle with life in a fallen world? And so that's what I, that's what I'm, that's what I hope to expound to you today. I hope to be able to explain how can we wrestle with life in a changing, in a fallen world. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, we begin in verse 2. It says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go out from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way, for there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what he is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I have observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go out in and out of the land, the holy place, and were praised in the city where they had done such things. They, this also is a vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not ex executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to the evil, to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity, and I commend joy for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink, be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied to my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done under the, on, on the earth, how neither day nor night do one eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However, much man many may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. I'm going to stop right here real quick, and we're going to move to chapter 9, verses 1 to 10 in a, in a little bit. But I want to... Um, I want to highlight a few things for you um, based off of this passage. And if you are following, if you are following closely, then you are probably confused. 
That's if you're if you're just you're you're looking at the passage and you're wondering, okay, you feel like the author is going from one area, one subject to another subject to another subject. Um, what's the purpose of this? What what is he trying to get at? The best way that I can describe how this passage is set up is, um, first of all, he talks about keeping a king's commandment, okay? And then he tries to wrestle with the fact that we live in a fallen world. If we live in a fallen world, what does it look like to obey the king? What does it look like to observe the king in a fallen world? And then I'm going to explain the other passages in a bit. But let's just begin with the, in the beginning, verse 2. It says this, a man, it says this, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Okay, it says, keep the king's command. Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Literally, it reads, keep the mouth of the king. Keep the mouth of the king because of God's oath to him. So, 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 so what it says is, in essence, what it's saying is that whether it says keep the king's commandment or whether it says um, keep the, the mouth of the king, essentially what it's saying is to obey the king of the land, the king that the Lord has placed in the land. Some of your versions may say um, because of the oath of the king, or some of your versions might say, because of the king's oath to God, or others of you might, yours might say, because of your oath to the king. Either way you go at this, ultimately what we see is that at the very least, at its essence, God is the ultimate sovereign authority. God is the one who places kings. God is the one who is essentially and ultimately involved. And so in the Old Testament, what you would see is the king will make an oath to God. Even right now, when um, during the presidential inauguration, you're going to see the king raise his right hand. People are, or the king, the president, um, raise his right hand. <laughs> um, what you're going to see, essentially what people are doing is they're swearing, swearing as as the king in the Old Testament, what he would do is he would swear before God that he would protect the people and he will serve the people. And so we have an obligation before God to honor those who are in authority, those who are in positions of authority. Um, now, before I continue what I'm about to say, I want to highlight the fact that um, America is not a theocratic nation. What do I mean by that? America is not a theocracy. A theocracy is a form of government that recognizes God as the supreme ruler. And the people would then be required to submit to God. In the Old Testament, um, what we see is that God would favor his people who? Israel, right? And God will protect his people. God will promise his people. The, the king will say, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm going to follow God's commandments. They would directly have revelation from God, and God would lead his people. And so no doubt the type of government was a theocracy. America is not a theocracy. This is not God's design for America to be a theocratic nation. So you can be a Buddhist here, and you can be a Muslim in this country. You can be 
Um, you can ha have any. You could be. You can worship God any way you want in this country, and you won't be punished because we do not. We believe that in the freedom of religion, in the sense that you, you and I are able to um, to practice, and we are able to have the freedom to practice our religion. And so, what we see in the New Testament is that God's new nation, God's new kingdom resides in his people in the church. And so what we find is that, that, that Jesus Christ, as he's reigning in the church, he is reigning, he, he, his kingdom is spread across all the nations in this world. So we as Christians, we submit to his rulership and his authority but in saying that, it is equally true that God reigns above all kings in this world. That above all presidents and above all kings in this world, God is the one who ultimately installs each person. And what better time to say this than now, right? Last week, many of us have witnessed, or all of us, we've all witnessed um, President elect Donald Trump win the nominee. And so now, you and I are confronted with a new reality. We woke up Tuesday morning with the new reality that Donald Trump will be our president. And I feel like this passage, I'm like, wow, right on track. I didn't plan this. This is not done on purpose. It's just, it just fell exactly where we landed. Um, and it's, it happens to be this week. And so how do we wrestle with that? How do we wrestle with this new reality? Josiah, what he did is he laughed. But how do we wrestle with that? What do we do? Well, the Bible just simply told us right here. Verse 2, I want you to see it yourself. I'm sorry that the words are small. It says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. And so what we do, what we need to learn is we need to learn how to obey authority in its proper context. I know you have questions. I'm going to, probably, I'll probably answer it throughout the course of the sermon. But in essence, at first, what we need to realize is that we are called to respect, we are called to honor those who are in leadership positions. And we know that Romans even talks about even praying for those who are in authority, praying for those who are in leadership, praying that God will, will use them, to, 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 use them to, to bless this nation, praying that God will use them to protect us from um, maybe terrorism and all sorts of things. Maybe we might have a negative view about those who are in leadership. I'm not going to say, I'm not going to espouse my views. I'm not going to say what I believe or what I don't believe. But what's important is not what you believe, really. Because you can believe that you're in a system where you, you don't agree wholeheartedly with the king or the president. But you are called to give honor to the position all right, many of you are hating me right now, I'm sorry. So how do you wrestle with this now? How do you wrestle with obeying someone in a fallen world? 
right? So this is what Ecclesiastes is doing. Ecclesiastes basically asks us the question. It understands, the book of Ecclesiastes understands that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is under the, under the sun. How do we try to apply God's word when we live in a fallen world? How do we try to obey God's word if the king himself is, let's just say, if the, if the, if the, if the president himself or the authority themselves, if they're subject to sin? If they do commit sin? If they sin against you, particularly. And so what we're going to understand from this passage, I pray that you'll be able to see this. The passage brings out the idea. It helps us to understand how do we wrestle with this? How do we grapple with this reality, the detention that we face when we feel like, man, I don't know if I agree with this. I, in fact, I feel like what he just did just now was just evil. How do we wrestle with that? Well, look at verse 3 with me. It says, Be ye not hasty to go from his presence. The, how, do, how I um, answer this question is, I, I, let me just highlight these things. I wrote, don't flee, don't stand, but walk cautiously. Or do not run, do not stand, but walk cautiously. That's how we're going to um, see how the passage answers the question. Don't, don't run. Don't stand, but walk cautiously. So what we see, verse 3, it says, Be not hasty to go from his presence. That's not running. Amen? You follow me so far? Do not be so quick to run from his presence. And I was looking up this passage. I'm like, what, what does that mean? And so I was just trying to figure it out. And I was just looking at the Old Testament all the times that it talks about someone fleeing from a king or someone fleeing from an authority. Nine, nine out of ten times when it says that, it's usually talking about fear. Someone is afraid of another king. David is fearful of King Solomon, and so he's running away from this king. And so what this passage is saying is, don't be afraid. Do not be scared. You have God as your king. God is your ultimate source of encouragement. God is the one whom you are to look to. Do not flee. Do not stand. What does that mean? It says, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. If the king declares something evil, if the king says that it's okay if the, if the, if the president or the authority tells you to do something that is wicked, you do not stand in an evil cause. You are not to submit to evil. You are not to, to, to do evil when the person in authority is telling you to do evil. And we see that in the book of Acts, don't we? When, when Peter says that, is it better to listen to man or to, to authority? Yes, we are called to be obedient to authority, but my friends, if that authority is telling you to disobey God, you are to say, it is better to obey God than to listen to man. And so, don't flee, don't be afraid, don't stand, don't stand for unrighteousness, but walk cautiously. Walk cautiously. We find that in verses 5 to 7. It says, 
Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. How do you deal and wrestle with someone who's in a position of authority, who has the power to hurt you, the power to maybe even kill you, the power to throw you in prison and, and those things? How do you walk cautiously? How do you wrestle with that? It says, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise of heart will know the proper time. The wise of heart will know the proper time the wise of heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although the man's ways are troubled, although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what it is or what he can tell him how it will be. Um, essentially what this passage is telling us is that the wise man understands that there is a proper place in a proper time to speak. That's what wisdom calls us to do. Wisdom doesn't call us to, when we get stopped by a cop and we feel like we are in the right, and then the cop is somehow, let's just say he's rude to us, wisdom is not you cussing him out. Wisdom is not you telling him at that moment, hey, you're wrong, what are you doing to me? You know, this is not right. What you doing to me? Is that wise? Maybe not. The Bible says that there is a proper time and a proper place for everything, even in our words. Maybe you might want to take, maybe you might want to hold your tongue. Maybe you might want to um, 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 use it to, maybe you might want to speak to a lawyer. But there's a proper place and a proper time. This is why I love the Bible. The Bible helps us to have a balanced position about life. We, we, the, the Bible is very balanced. It helps us to understand how to wrestle with certain things. And I pray that this is the, I, I, I have the right interpretation, but this is what it seems like it's suggesting that there is a time and there is a place for everything. There's a time to use your words and there's a time to be quiet. There's a time to use your word even wisely. Here's something to consider as well. This is not only an application when you're with, when you're facing authority in the government, but this is also, the, the application also bears in the context of marriage, in the context of anything in life, in every and any arena in your life. I was listening to uh, a pastor and his wife, they were speaking about relationship um, Pastor uh, Matt Chandler, actually, um, who has a church in Texas, and they were explaining how early on, early on in their marriage, I believe the first six years in their marriage was just difficult. It was difficult. It was, it was hard. They didn't know what to do. They were wrestling with a lot of difficulties in their marriage. And one day, the, the husband, what he ended up doing, the wife did something that he didn't like, and he was in the kitchen area, she was like in the living room area, and he just snapped at her, said something really bad to her, some, something hurtful to her. And you know what? This was the, the point, this is, was the time that their marriage turned around for the good. After he yelled at her or said something bad to her, said something that he wasn't supposed to say, what she ended up doing is she got up, she walked around to him, to the kitchen, 
and she just hugged him with tears and she says, look, I'm probably messing this up, but he probably said something to the effect of, I love you, I'm not going anywhere. Something to that effect. And Matt explains how at that moment, his marriage turned for the good because he realized, wow, I'm always blaming her for my problems when I didn't realize it was me. And so what Lauren learned to do is she learned not to use her words at the time. She learned how to restrain her, herself from talking. Maybe she could have felt like she was justified. Maybe she felt like she was justified in, in, in saying something back to him and saying, you're wrong, you've just sinned against me. She could have said that. She would have been right to say that he, have, he sinned against her. But my point is, she understood what Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 15. When you look at Proverbs chapter 15, verses 1 to 6, it says these words. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Do you hear that? A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue, a gentle tongue, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. My friends, learn how to use your word. Learn how to use your word. Let your words be used to bless people and not to curse. And be wise when you're speaking to others. Sometimes there's a time and a place for everything. You don't want to speak and say the things that you need to say in a time of a heated argument. Maybe you might want to wait a little bit. A soft answer turns away wrath. All right. Um, yeah, there was, there was another pastor who was explaining, um, the, uh, I was listening to a sermon, how he was, he was explaining that um, any time that he is angry, you know, he comes home and he, he's, he's at home and he's like, wait, What's going on? And, 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 and he says something that's, that's wrong to his wife. The wife, when she responds to him in grace, he says he feels like the biggest fool in the world. Um, but like, the, the point is not for you to make the person feel like a fool, um, but the point, I think, it's a, an application that can bear in all arenas of our lives. Okay, so we dealt with the reality of how do we grapple with Honoring a king, how do we grapple with honoring someone who's an authority in a fallen world, right? Another thing that we can grapple with is how do we grapple with injustice in this world? Injustice in this world. Okay, so let's look at the next passage that talks about injustice in this world. He says these words, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such a thing. This also is vanity because the sentence against an 
evil deed is not execute, executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, his life continues to prolong. Here's what he's saying here in this passage. He says, okay, I see the king, and I understand this is how we wrestle with this area. But then what about people? I'm looking at people right now, and I'm seeing wicked people. People who don't care about God. People who don't care about God's law. People who are just living in, in lust, living in every kinds of ways, in every kind of evil way. And, but why is it that they're flourishing? Why is it? I see the wicked person, and I saw that person. He was buried. The person, he died. But when, during the course of his life, I used to see him go in and out of the holy place. He, would go, he was going into church. These people, they were going to church. They were praising God, and yet they were profaning God. It says they used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were praising the city where they had done, done such a thing. People were even praising them. People were even giving those guys glory. They were like, you're doing a great job. They were coming in and out of the church. They would profane God's name, and nobody would look at them and say, you're, you're wrong. The world looked to them with approval. Everyone looked to them with approval. And the Solomon is looking at their life, and it's apparently flourishing. So then how do you wrestle with that? He says, because the sentence of an evil deed does not, is not executed speedily. What he's saying is this. When this person is going before God and he's acting in vanity, he's doing certain things and he's acting in a way that is contrary to God's law, God is not punishing them. I don't see God striking them with death speedily. An evil deed is not executed speedily. And the, the heart of the children of men is, is fully set to do evil. And then a, a sinner could do evil a hundred times and his life is prolonged. How do you wrestle with that? How do you deal with that? The way that you deal with that is to trust God. The way that you deal with that is to understand that God has something better for Christians than he does for unbelievers. We must live in faith. Friends, as Christians, we are living in faith. We are not living by sight. We're not living to see temporary blessings. We're living to see future and eternal blessings. So if you see people committing evil acts, and apparently they're not being punished for it, do not look to them and say, okay, they're living the better life, my friends. Even if it seems like your portion is bad, even if it seems like you have it worse, my friends, when you look at life in light of eternity, you realize that you are the blessed one. And so that's how he answers the question. He says, I see the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place. But he says these words. Verse 12, he says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. He says, I know it will be well with those who fear God. Note the word will. It will be well with those who fear God. It will not be well with the wicked, neither will, his, will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. My friend, are you a person that's looking to this temporary life as blessing, as a sign of God's blessing? 
Maybe people are praising you, and maybe people are saying great things about you. And maybe nobody ever called you out on your sins, particularly. And you're living your life, and you're saying, wow, everything is going well for me, and I'm enjoying my life, and I feel like, man, things are going well for me. And yet, you don't fear God. You don't fear God's word. You look at God's word, and he says these things, and he says, don't do this. And you're like, ha ha, God's word. I don't fear you, God. And you believe that you are blessed. My friend, don't look to this world as proof of God's blessing to you. Perhaps you might see it that you're not, perhaps you, you, you see that God's not striking you dead, but maybe as Romans, the Bible, the book of Romans says that the reason why he's holding you here is he's, 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 he has patience for you. He's showing you, he's trying to display his patience, but my friends, one day that patience will run out. And I ask you the question right now, and I'm going to ask you a pointed question that that demands a reply from you, do you fear God? Do you look to God for his blessings? Are you looking to the future? It will be well with the righteous. It will be well with the righteous. Are you trusting in God? And even if you are here today and you are a Christian, are there areas in your life that's showing that you are not trusting in God, that you are looking to this temporary world? You are here today, the same God that you should fear. If you're here today and you're like, man, I don't know about this Christianity stuff, this same God that you are called to fear, the same God that you're called to, to look at his word and say, wow, this is what God says, this is how I should obey, I want you to know this thing, that that same God who demands these things from you is the same God of forgiveness. That same God is the same God that sends his son, Jesus Christ, for you. That same God is that same God who says, you know what? You deserve all of the punishment. You deserve everything because you have broken my law. You, de you deserve my wrath. But the point of the cross, the point of Jesus Christ coming down in this, in this world, in this earth, is so that he can absorb that wrath for you so that you don't have to face that punishment anymore and so if you want to say I trust in you Jesus Christ I believe in you what Jesus Christ has done on the cross was for me and my sins are forgiven then you have received grace and you can walk in your newness of life so I want to tell you here if you're here today that if you don't know this reality yet I beckon you I urge you to make, that, to make that decision to turn to Jesus Christ, to look to the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. You need forgiveness. The greatest thing that you need is forgiveness. That's the greatest thing you need. It's not a New Year's resolution. It's not to pat yourself in the back and say, I'm going to try better. I'm going to try to do God's commandment better. The greatest thing that you need is the forgiveness of your sin, and that forgiveness is offered only on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so he solves the problem. The way that we deal with this is by fearing God and looking to the future for blessedness.
We have two ways to live, my friend, for this temporary world or for eternity. The last thing that we want to talk about, I promise that we're going to um, go through chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. Let's read it real quick. Chapter 9, it says, basically what the author is going to do is he's going to help us wrestle with the inevitability of death. How do you wrestle with the inevitability of death? But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same before all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and to the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is so is the sinner, and he who swears is as is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of children of men are full of evil and the madness in their hearts while they live and after they go to the dead. But he who is joined with the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know what they will, that they will die, but the dead knows nothing and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done. Go eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife with whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because That is the portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hands finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. All right. What is this passage saying? I want you to notice a few things in this passage. First of all, If you realize this passage, chapter 9, verse 2, I'm sorry, not verse 2, I believe it's verse, hopefully I I wrote it down and that could help me. What we find in this passage, okay, it says, okay, verse 4, it says, But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dog, than a dead lion. Um, And it actually begins in um, verse 3, where it says that, basically in the end where it says that the same events happen to us all. Also the heart of children of men are full of evil and the madness in their hearts while they live and they and after they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. So basically what this is saying is basically the living is better than the dead. That's what he's saying, right? A living dog is better than a dying lion. 
Now, why should that confuse you? Because if we remember in chapter 4, verse 2, in chapter 4, verse 2, what it says is something that seems to contradict what this passage is saying right now. Chapter 4, verse 2, and it says, And I thought, the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Grab them with Ecclesiastes. Chapter 4, verse 2 says, it's better to be dead. Here in this chapter it says, it's better to be alive. It's better to be an alive dog than a dead lion. What, what's, what, what's, what's the contradiction here? How do we wrestle with this? Well, if you're understanding Ecclesiastes, his tone, how he speaks, that's how he does it. Chapter 4, verse 2, if you look at the context, you're understanding that he's talking about living in a world full of suffering. Living in a world full of suffering, right? Sometimes you look at life and you're looking at life and you're like, man, I don't feel like this world is where I want to be. And he's like, it's better to not be here. And then when you look at this chapter over here, he's trying to help us wrestle and grapple with the fact that, yes, we do live in a fallen world, but there are plenty of blessings for us. Let's see what it says. He highlights the fact that, that death is inevitable. We, we see that throughout the chapter, throughout chapter 9. He says the same event happens to us all. If you were here with us when we talked about there's a time for everything, we talked about there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. There's a time to die. We all are going to face death one way or another. You see, the fact that, you know, we always say, we always look at people when they die as a tragedy. It is true. It is a tragedy. But the same event is going to happen to us all. We're all going to die if the Lord does not tarry. If the Lord tarries, we all will die one way or another. And, and so what he does for you as a Christian, he doesn't want you to have a very... Um, negative view about life, always thinking about death, like, oh man, I'm going to die soon, so, you know, I want to strip myself from all joy and all fun. What he does instead in verse 7, he says, go eat, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. What he's saying here is, look, enjoy the blessings that God has given you. If you're not sinning, you're not doing something in sin, Enjoy the things that God has given you. Again, like we talked about idolatry before, if it's not an idol in your life, enjoy it. Let your garments be always white. Let not your oil be lacking in your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Enjoy life. Enjoy the husband or the wife that God has given you. Enjoy it. And so if you are here today, I want you to think about your life in this way. Do you plan out your week, out your days, in ways in which you can enjoy God's blessings? Do you intentionally think about ways in which you can enjoy the things that God has provided you with? Do you think about ways in which you can have, you, you, you intentionally think about a way in which you can have no, maybe a nice romantic dinner with your husband. Plan it out. The Bible tells us that this is a gift from him to you. 
I don't want us to be Christians that are unbalanced, where we think that the blessings, that the temporary things in this world, that they're curses or something like that. The Bible says in Timothy that one day that there are going to be false prophets, that they're going to deny food, certain kinds of food. They're going to deny marriage. And he says, man, these, these things, these, this is coming from hell. It's a satanic kind of religion. When you want to, say, strip yourself from all kinds of pleasures of this world, but no, I want you to have this balanced kind of view where you are called to enjoy the life in which God has given you. And so I want you to think about and wrestle with these truths to th this week. I want you to wrestle with the truth of the fact that we have a new president. I want you to wrestle with the truth that we have people who are in authority over us. And we have to learn how to grapple with these truths in a fallen world. I want you to wrestle with the fact that we have other people in this world who seems to be, they seem like, it seems like their life is progressing. And it seems like your life is not. I want you to remember to trust and fear God. And then I want you to remember that the inevitability of death causes you to remind yourself, yes, to enjoy the fruit of this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Lord, I'm, as I preach, Lord, I'm realizing the things that I'm missing and the things that I wish I could have said and how much, how many things I find here in your word, Lord, that could be said. But Lord, I do pray that the little that we did discuss, that you will speak to each person here. I pray that for those of us here who, who love you and honor you, God, I pray that, you, that this passage would help them to learn how to glorify you in these things. I pray for those of us here who have not yet understood yet the gospel or understand Christianity. I pray that you will extend that grace and the forgiveness of their sins, Lord, to them. That they will understand, Lord, through the cross that they have life. I pray for each person, Lord, here in Jesus' name. Amen.